Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day, lo. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Ladies and gentlemen, uh, can I please have your attention? Daniel Jigger! Dear listeners, this is Jonah Goldberg, host of the Remnant Podcast, brought to you by the Dispatch and Dispatch Media. So, I'm actually recording this late, late, late on Thursday, um, because on Friday, uh, my one and only daughter, Lucy, is graduating from high school, and we've got a full day ahead of us, and there was no way I could get this done, or could count on getting this done in the morning. Um, I still may try to get up really super early and try to write a G file because I, I really, really, really hate missing deadlines. Um, I'm sure I've talked about this before, but, um, you know, one of the keys to the life I have chosen is just always doing the basics of getting the work that is required of me done on schedule. You know, I've been writing a syndicated column twice a week for, uh, over 20 years now. And, um, I've missed, you know, sometimes cause I'm on vacation, but usually when I'm on a vacation, I still write the column. Um, sometimes when I was sick or whatever, or family emergency, you know, I've missed, but f- for the most part, it's sort of like, you know, the analogy I always use is people who are really, really into running. They just, they need to run every day um because they can't they're not comfortable with themselves if they're not if they don't do it they just have to check the box and that's how i've been about you know writing columns and g files and all that kind of stuff for a very very long time and um it's my way of dealing with it and so anyway i will try and do it but you know this is obviously a special occasion and um and so i'm recording this it has been quite a day I have been warned by Chris Steyerwalt via uh, the Minions that I talk too often about being tired, so I won't say I am tired. I will note that um, I was up at five in the morning and, or earlier actually, I, um, and um, have had nonstop conference calls, weird meetings, had to write a column today, and um, right when I was getting into the teeth of working on the column, um, we heard from Kirsten, the dog walker who takes care of the dogs midweek, you know, for the midday dog walks that both the dingo and the spaniel had rub had rolled in something so foul that, uh, Kirsten did not want to speculate on what it was. And so we, my wife enlisted me and we had to give them both real scrubbing baths. And of course, the moment they got home, it started to rain. So, uh, Jess and I in a pretty cold downpour were 
bathing the dogs. They were very confused by the whole thing. Um, we don't really understand. Like Pippa, you know, look, I mean, Pippa could get the 250 points that you get when you fill out your name correctly on the SAT. Um, she's not a genius. She's not a fighter. She's a lover, and she particularly loves to fetch balls. But Zoe's smart. She's got cunning, street smarts. She's clever. She's very much like one of the velociraptors in um, Jurassic Park. You know, there are many times a week, you're just a clever girl. And, um, and you'd think that Zoe would make the connection between rolling in Stygian foulness and having to get a bath, which she hates. Um, but she does it anyway. And, and, and it's, it's not good. It's not good. They're good dogs, but uh, this is not the best part of dog ownership. Um, so anyway, uh, it's been quite a day and I promised my daughter that I would take her to dinner tonight. So she's got to get her hair done for, um, graduation tomorrow and I'm going to take her after. So I'm looking forward to that. But anyway, so, uh, where to begin? Um, I have not checked in very much with the news today, but I did see that, um, the Tubin missile crisis has entered a new phase. Uh, he is back on CNN. I watched about 10 seconds of his, uh, mea culpa. I, I don't know. Um, I really did not want to hear more about this, uh, seminal moment in American journalism as it were. But, uh, I gotta say, I just don't, I don't understand. There's something I was talking to John Pedorza about this on the phone, um, today, um, and texting with some friends of mine about it. Like, I just, it was weird. You know, pod said to me, you know, I think I'd rather be dead. And I thought it was funny because the person who had sent me the link to the video clip, the first thing he said to me was, I think I'd rather be dead. And I don't want to, you know, I'm not saying that Dubin should be dead or that, you know, and I don't want to like celebrate suicidal thoughts. Suicidal thoughts are bad. And if you have them, you should seek help and solace and all of these kinds of things. And all of that. But, um, like I personally just don't get the idea that you like being on TV so much that, um, you're willing to crawl out of the hole that you were in for seven months to go on and talk about this stuff as sort of part of the price for re-entry into punditry. Um, um, and it's just, you know, it, it, it just always astonishes me the number of people who care about that stuff so much and what they're willing to do. I mean, like maybe there's some story about how he needs money or whatever, you know, and you'll do anything if you need to support your family, but there are ways he could support his family without going back into the limelight. And I just, I don't get it. I don't get it. And I don't just get it about him, not get it about him. I just don't get it in general. Um, it's just not that awesome to be on TV all the time. And yet I just know so many people who would dry up and blow away if they weren't on TV all the time. I've talked about this a lot on Glop, you know, it's like Larry King had a pretty good career. Uh, he didn't need to be doing where I'm not sure where he ended up finally on, you know, um, on the ecosystem of really subpar TV. I know he was doing something for Russia today for a while. And then 
think I've seen him on infomercials. I honestly, I don't know if he's still alive. I don't mean to speak ill of the dead, but, um, you know, maybe leave on a high note and just not think that you will cease to exist if you're not on TV. Um, so anyway, we don't need to do all and all that. I'm sure there'll be opportunities to return to that subject a plenty of times. Actually, let's just, let's just turn to some rank punditry instead. Cause I just don't want to, um, dwell in the land of Tubin any more than I have to. Um, I saw this thing in Politico this morning in playbook that, uh, some people around Kamala Harris are, uh, uh, letting it be known that they understand that she has not gotten off to a great start in this as the border immigrations are or whatever, and that she did not have a great performance. Um, and it was, it was a weird sort of flow. Let me see if I can find it. Um, she, the, um, yeah, it's one of these small items in playbook. It says assessing the veeps trip, Kamala Harris's trip to Guatemala and Mexico like just about every foreign trip by, by a president or vice president was a mix of policy and politics. On the policy, her aides, her allies, and those in the immigration advocacy space tell us she did what she was supposed to do. On the politics, they admit her performance could have been smoother. Then here's this parenthesis. Though they will also remind you the bar is much higher for a woman of color. Um. I am totally open to the idea that there are contexts and places in life um, where the bar is higher for a woman of color. Um, I made this point a bunch of times about women in politics in general. I do think there are some structural disadvantages. I mean, we don't need to get into um, critical feminist theory here, but it's a sort of a good example of, of what I've been talking about. And some people keep misunderstanding what I'm saying, or maybe I'm miscommunicating it where you know the original understanding of a lot of this stuff was a way to explain disparities in outcomes that could not be attributed to conscious discriminate discriminatory or bigoted um acts or people in these institutions right it was just that there were these were emanation emanations from the system itself that led to disparities or uh lack of equity equity whatever the buzz phrases are supposed to be and i'm open to the idea that some of those things exist in fact i i've made the case i think some of those kinds of things exist and the double standard for women in politics um i think can be one of them um and i don't and i'm not talking about how women are judged harshly because they're women. I mean, there's some of that stuff. Obviously there's misogyny, all blah, 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 blah. We don't need to have that conversation. My, my point is a much more just like bread and butter point. Men can wear the same clothes pretty much every day for a year. In fact, there was, I think there was some newscaster who did this as an experiment who wore, someone was telling me this, wore the same suit for full 365 days as an experiment to see if anybody would notice. And nobody did. Um, if you have a dark suit and maybe a couple different ties and a clean shirt, you can wear the same suit as a politician a lot. I mean, maybe that's changing now with you know the need to be sort of more of a authentic American and ride around a pickup truck with flannel, although Lamar tried that and it didn't work out too well for him. Um, but the basic point is, is that you don't have to dedicate a lot of mental bandwidth, nor does your staff, to what to wear. Now, meanwhile, women do. And I'll be the first to point out, 
I honestly think this has a lot more to do with the judgment of other women than it has to do with the judgment of men. Um, which sort of gets to my point about how it is not sort of uh, garden variety textbook, you know, uh, campus HR training sexism that has created this standard, at least not in the contemporary society for women. It may be vestigial from the past about how women are supposed to present themselves and all that kind of stuff open to that as a historical analysis. But my sense is, is that for the most part, women dress to impress other women, at least in these professional settings, or at least they're much more worried about what, what other women say and how they get judged on that level than how men judge them. I mean, just the whole mystery of women's shoes, which we don't have to get too deep in the weeds on, but I have never known a heterosexual male who has focused much attention on women's shoes um, unless there was some sort of really weird outlier thing, maybe they were in clown shoes or they stepped in something or maybe just, just abnormally enormous or abnormally tiny feet. Just, that's just not where the male gaze goes. And, but women can get into in depth and serious arguments about all these things about women's shoes. Pippa. And I'm uh, sorry about that. Dogs are going crazy upstairs, but, um, Oh, so yeah. So, uh, regardless, it's just this, whoever, however you want to assign blame, I don't really care. Right. That's not my point. Um, it's just an objective fact as in terms of a, a social construction of reality that women have to have a lot more wardrobe. Uh, they have to do more with their hair than men do, particularly bald men. Um, and, uh, when, on, particularly like on a presidential campaign or really any sort of serious competitive campaign um, where you are scheduling things down to five minute interval intervals and you think these things and you know, the time is supremely important to take an inordinate amount of time to do this kind of stuff is a structural imbalance between the two. And I think that there are, you know, there are obviously more serious um double standards that apply to men and women and in politics and elsewhere and all that. But even stipulating all of these things, it is also true that sometimes instead of the bar being much higher for women of color or of women in general, sometimes the bar is lower. And, um, in, in part because of the way these things are kind of enforced and, um, you know, sometimes it has an ideological component to it. I mean, it was a, Say what you will, but Sarah Palin, I am no longer a fan. Um, and I think she's kind of a tragic case. But the viciousness with which she was treated, because she was a woman from the left and from elite media, was really astounding. Even if you credit the, the, the substantive, serious criticisms of Sarah Palin, um, the moral panic freakout that um, the sort of elite feminist meritocracy types went into about Sarah Palin was extremely telling. And I, I always quote this. I can find you the exact quote if I had time. Um, there was a academic at the, I believe it's the university of Chicago. Um, I quoted it a bunch of times where she wrote, I think for Newsweek that, um, it was, um, this is damn close to a direct quote. Um, 
Sarah, perhaps Sarah Palin's greatest hypocrisy is her pretense to, of being a woman. And um, the whole, you know, the, if, you, if you picked up that weed and you looked at the roots of it, the argument is, is that essentially the same thing that they do to people like Clarence Thomas is that unless you are um, pulling for the policies that feminists say define authentic feminist policies, not only can you not call yourself a feminist, which would be fine, um, they'll actually start saying that you're not a woman or that you're not black, right? Um, they don't really have the equivalent word phrase for Uncle Tom for, for women, but I'm sure something exists along those lines. And um, a lot of this stuff has to do, you know, th this is, I'm just meandering here. Um, the, my, um, the Ibrahim X. Kendi, I think that's his name, the, guy, the foremost guy in this anti-racism stuff, that's basically, if, if that's what we're calling critical race theory, right, which is that it's this anti-racism thing where it, it doesn't matter whether you have bigotry in your heart, if you don't affirmatively support what he and his uh, milieu of activists define as anti-racist policies, then you're objectively racist. And, you know, people keep asking, why does this have anything to do with, why do people call this Marxist? I actually had a long conversation with my wife about this the other day. And to the extent it draws on Marxism, and it does as, as a matter of intellectual history, even though I doubt one in a thousand people who talk about critical race theory uh, as a good thing could explain to you what its roots in Marxism are. But it goes back to this idea of... um material conditions uh, that is in Marx and a lot of Marxist thought. And it's, it's very much like this um, uh, anti-racism stuff in this way, right? So it used to be, uh, you know, um, Marxists, when they would have their conferences or they give their speeches and their whatever, they would say, it is objectively true that, right? And they would argue that it is objectively true because they like to use the word objectively true because it conjured the, it, it drew upon the myth that Marxism was scientific, right? So this is, this has nothing to do with one person's opinion or a contest of values. They always tried to steal authority on the cheap by claiming to be scientific. That's largely gone now. But instead what's, what, what's left is this, the same sort of Marxist argument that they used to make, which is if you were, um, not with the program of the communists or the socialists or whatever. Um, if you had a, um, point of view that wasn't for the, uh, for the revolutionary overthrow or the revolutionary or radical transformation of society, then you were objectively on the side of the ruling classes of the um, the aristocracy of, uh, the industrial class or what, um, Randy Weingarten recently called the ownership class. And that's where this whole thing about, you know, class consciousness comes out of in that if you, um, are part of the proletariat, the working class, the lumpen proletariat, all those kinds of things. Once you achieve class, class consciousness, once you actually see the exploitation inherent in the system, um, then of course you will act in solidarity with the other members of your class for the overthrowing of the established order. And if you don't agree with all of that, then you are objectively 
on the side of the oppressors. So that's the psychological rhetorical trick that critical race theorists use, or at least anti-racist theorists use when they talk about race, insofar as they um, say, we have a monopoly on the truth. We have a monopoly on what constitutes racist, racist policy and not racist policy. And if you don't affirmatively side with us in pushing anti-racist um, uh, policies and philosophies and ideas, then you are objectively on the side of racism. And it doesn't even matter whether you are personally racist because you are on the wrong side of the defining material conditions of how society is organized. And, um, and that would be wrong enough and bad enough, except for the fact that because most of these people don't actually understand that they're mimicking Marxist arguments, um, they take it a step further and they say it's not only true that you are on the side of racism, but you must actually be a racist in your heart if you disagree with us. And how did I get on this? Um, Kamala Harris. So, um, um, the Kamala Harris thing about, you know, this little, little item in, in playbook where they say, you know, we've got to remind you that it's the, the bar is always much higher for, a um, a woman of color. They're sort of putting you on notice that you're not allowed to actually judge her simply on the merits of what she did and how she did it down there. You have to sort of have this weird sort of, you know, what Bush uh, might have called soft bigotry of low expectations thing and and great on a curve in some way. And again, I'm sometimes open to that. That might be a legitimate argument in some, I, mean, I think it is a legitimate argument in some sense, in some cases and all the rest, but it's also a way of saying, you know, you got to set the bar lower. And I just think that if you were looking at Kamala Harris's performance so far as vice president and measuring it on an objective standard that has nothing to do with grading skin color or, or sex or gender or all that stuff, you say she's not been doing a very good job. Um, you know, when she was asked by Lester Holt, um, you know, you haven't been to the border and she responded, well, I haven't been to Europe either. Um, that is true. That is also a non sequitur. Um, if there were, um, somehow, you know, millions of, or not millions, thousands or tens of thousands of Swedes and, and Belgians and Brits and French people pouring into boats like Vietnamese in 1975 and crossing the ocean on a dangerous journey led by the, you know, nautical equivalent to coyotes to, uh, sneak them into the United States of America. Um, then you could say, okay, well, I haven't gone to Europe either. And that would make some sense. But A, that's not happening. And B, if it were happening, she should go to Europe. Similarly, because something like that is in fact happening at the border. And she was, you know, uh, I mean, they've, they've played games, if my, if my recollection is right. They originally said she was going to be the point person on this entire immigration crisis. And then it dawned on somebody that this was a setup for failure. Um, and so they carved out the actual border part from her so that she would have an excuse for not going down there. And instead, she was going to deal with the geopolitical you know, issues that the root causes that lead to all of this stuff. And um, that's fine. But maybe you should have anticipated that as just a political matter before they made the announcement and said, hey, maybe I don't want this hot potato. 
you know, and this does lead some people to speculate that maybe Joe Biden is setting her up for failure or something like that. But I, I, I kind of doubt it. I mean, yeah, there are people in the Biden camp who clearly must not like her. And again, not because she's a woman of color or any of that kind of stuff, but because she, in a sense, in, in effect, called Joe Biden a racist in their first debate during the primaries. And, um, uh, and she really knocked Biden back on his heels. And, uh, so some, I would assume some people for those reasons alone hold a grudge. It's also possible that because she has one of the most annoying ticks in politics, um, I didn't mean for that to sound like that. One of the most annoying habits in politics, um, which is she has this un, this, this, just intolerable habit of laughing at her own jokes, which look, we're all guilty of to some extent, and I'm sure I'm guiltier than most. Um, but first of all, her jokes aren't funny. And two, she laughs way too hard at them. And she also laughs when they're not really jokes. They're just sort of these, um, you know, dear God, I'm caught in a situation where I don't know how to answer. So I'll say something weird. And then I'll cackle really hard and then um, hope that it'll either be infectious or distracting and either give me time to think through what I was going to say or, or otherwise disorient uh, my, you know, rhetorical opponent as if I delivered the, you know, uh, the verbal equivalent of the five finger uh, death punch from, uh, what was that movie? Um, Kill Bill. Uh, so I don't know, but like, I, I just find her grating and, um, uh, and I, I honestly don't think this is a sexist thing. I just think that she's not done, um, a great job and that she is, uh, and that she does not wear well over time. And, um, my understanding is that in person, she's actually quite nice. I mean, this is one of these weird things about some politicians, um, they sometimes just don't seem like the person that sometimes the person they are on TV is not the person they are in real life. I mean, sometimes they are. I mean, in my experience, Mitch McConnell is exactly the same person on, uh, in person that he is on TV. I mean, he might smile a little more in person, but, uh, he is, he is so tightly wound. Um, but George W. Bush, he is so comfortable in his own skin. And when he talks in person, it doesn't sound weird or anything like that. Um, but when he was on TV, he used to have, you know, real problems like getting whole sentences out. I remember I used to write about how, you know, sometimes, you know, that feeling you get when you, um, you miss a step in the dark when you're going down to like some stairs. And so you do that little sort of like six inch or three inch fall. And there's that momentary lizard brain panic where you're like, oh my God, you know, am I, am I in free fall or am I going to, you know, hit the step any second now? And it's just that, that instantaneous nanosecond of, of doubt. That's how I, and a lot of people felt sometimes listening to Bush start a sentence. You're like, dear God, where's this going? And then he'd end up sticking the landing and it'd be, you know, and, but by that time you were so stressed out about like him not being able to do it, that you kind of lost track of what he was saying. And the weird thing is if you went back and read the transcript of what Bush was saying, like in presidential debates and whatnot, it was perfectly coherent. 
it just there was just something about the way he talked on TV that hit your ear weird. Meanwhile, John Kerry often sounded like he was um uh being a very serious senator person and then you look at the transcript and it was just, you know, it was just a hot mess. It was like, you know, someone had choked and barfed up a word salad on 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 a on the teleprompter. So anyway, I again, I don't know how I got all all the way over there. I do think that the Biden administration, I you know, for a, there was a little while there. Well, I I'll admit I fell for it too. Where you know Biden was talking so about trillion dollar this and trillion dollar that and trillion dollar the other thing, and the the original COVID relief thing passed so easily. Um, basically, Republicans the Republicans didn't just get steamrolled. They lay down in front of the steamroller and did nothing to stop, um, uh, nothing of consequence to stop uh, the first $1.9 trillion thing. And so, you know, there were a lot of us who were like, oh my gosh, you know, he's taking this seriously, this New Deal thing and all that. And um, I was always skeptical about the New Deal thing. I've been writing about how you're not going to get a new New Deal for a very long time. And it's always been right. Uh, you know, Barack Obama wanted a new New Deal. Chuck Schumer after 9-11 wanted a new New Deal. Um, there is something just deep, deep in the bloodstream of the Democratic Party who thinks that's that's why you go into politics is to launch a new New Deal. Um, and, you know, the problem with that is it doesn't reflect political reality, which is that, you know, FDR had massive, massive political support for what he was doing. And it wasn't just that he was a good politician and it just wasn't just that he was really effective at, at in the effort to demonize Herbert Hoover um, uh, unfairly, I would add. I would say unfairly from any angle, you know, whether you are a pro-New Deal person or an anti-New Deal person, because I mean, we can go into the weeds on it, but um, you know, the New Deal was much more of a continuation of a lot of Hoover policies than it was a break from them. Regardless, um, this was also a period of time in, 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 in world history where there had been no experience of taking the techniques of um, these new technologies, new engineering, mass communication. It really did seem like they were entering into a new, new realm, you know, a new age. And, um, you know, as I often point out, you know, Herbert Hoover, when he ran in 28, one of his slogans was, do you want an engineer or a politician to be president? And um, this was back when social engineering was a positive term. This was back when, um, um, you know, how we use the phrase uh, energy czar or immigration czar. It all started, I think, with like the drug czar stuff. Um, Back in the late 20s, early 30s, they used the word dictator the same way because it didn't have a negative connotation, um, or at least not as much of a negative connotation as it, as it you know, obviously does post-Hitler. And, and so my point is just that the material conditions, as it were, were uh, much more propitious for all that. Plus, just as a matter of rank punditry, FDR, you know, the Democrats took an ungodly number of seats in the 1930 election and then another bunch of seats in the 1932 election and then another bunch of seats in the 1934 election to the point where FDR had these super majorities, including big slices of the now minority Republican party 
in favor of the New Deal. Biden doesn't have anything like that. He came into you know he came into office having fulfilled his mandate on day one by not being Donald Trump. And then the only other thing that you could you know plausibly say he really had a mandate for, and I, I think mandates are mostly a BS concept, um, was distributing the vaccine. And he's accomplished that, and he deserves credit as far as that goes. Um, but he didn't have a mandate for a new New Deal. He didn't. He didn't even, if, I mean, if A.B. Stoddard is right, he didn't even expect to control the Senate. How do you plan on having a new New Deal when you don't have control of the Senate, never mind like super control of the Senate? And so there was this brief shining moment where it seemed like, oh my gosh, we're going to have $6 trillion of spending and the infra, you know, we're going to have two waves of multi-trillion dollar infrastructure bills and all these kinds of things. And it was all a mirage. It wasn't going to happen. And I think the liberal historians who spun up Biden have a lot to answer for because they may have fatally wounded his, his administration. And, um, and now it's too late because you can't make a second first impression. Um, and the, the, you know, the dies have been cast in all sorts of ways. I'm not saying his presidency is doomed to be a failed presidency, but if he had actually come into an office and behaved pretty much as he signaled, he was going to of being sort of a deal maker, a bipartisan kind of guy, a moderate who would hold the left wing of his party at bay a little bit and work with Republicans. If he even seemed like more of that kind of guy. And, and then to fairness, he's tried to seem like that a little bit, at least in terms of messaging. Um, I think his presidency would have been off to a much better start, but we've seen this now with the last, you know, what, three presidents, they get into office, they have unified control of government and they swing for the fences. And then they're shocked when the other side hardens and becomes completely dedicated to, um, you know, obstruction and, and, and throwing you out. And, uh, and so I just think it was a missed opportunity. And now Biden is scrambling to deal with the reality he has rather than the political reality he wanted. Um, all right, enough punditry. Well, hold on. So, all right. So this is kind of a weird thing. Um, I don't know if it's weird. Yeah, it's weird. Whatever. Um, so Greg Abbott announced that, they were going to ban vaccine requirements of any kind for any business or almost, I believe pretty much any government institution. At least that's the way the video thing first broke on Twitter. And, um, and I responded to this. Um, are you going to ban on Twitter? I responded, are you going to, uh, ban, uh, businesses from posting signs saying no shoes, no, no shoes, no shirt, no service now too. And I gotta be, I gotta, I gotta tell you, I, I've been stunned and I don't get stunned by blowback on Twitter very often. I've been stunned by the right wing, including from a lot of blue checkmark people, uh, the right wing, you know, backlash against that tweet. And I can, I can totally understand why you still I mean, I think you're wrong, and I'll get to that in a second. But I can totally understand why you favor the Abbott policy. But the I, you know, but these people, a bunch of people, are like, you know, how do you call? How can you call yourself a conservative? Didn't you write a book called Liberal Fascism? All this stuff, and this is a classic remnant kind of issue here, right? Um, um, up until like five minutes ago, these sort of standard conservative position was that the, the baker should not be forced to bake a gay wedding cake if he doesn't want to. 
Um, and you know, there is even a robust line of thinking on the right, um, that I think usually goes too far depending on how it's phrased. Um, about, you know, the, we went too far with the, the, the civil rights acts by not allowing people to hire and fire or serve people that they want to serve. And the reason why just as a, just so people don't aren't confused by this, the reason why I think that usually goes too far is that that stuff was needed to get rid of Jim Crow. And, um, and it was needed because those were democratic tyrannies in a lot of these states that created a system of second class citizens. And, um, and you needed the federal government to step in and, and fix that stuff. But there are a lot of, so like if, if, if a lot of people get caught in the idea of, because it's some of that stuff, that civil rights regime has been taken too far now, that therefore it wasn't necessary back then. And I just disagree with that. I mean, it's sort of like my view about Abraham Lincoln. Abraham Lincoln did a lot of things that in a time of peace and prosperity, I would be horrified by, you know, suspending habeas corpus, closing down newspapers, that kind of stuff. But in the midst of a civil war, the, the rules change. And, you know, and this is always my complaint about, you know, how Woodrow Wilson got Abraham Lincoln completely backwards. Wilson loved Lincoln's abuses of power. He just hated what he abused power for, which is the other, you know, which is the complete moral inverse of the way you're supposed to think about it. You're supposed to say, gosh, these were really regrettable measures that were forced by the contingency of the time in order to win the civil war and ultimately free the slaves. And, you know, you can say would that it was not necessary to go that far, um, which I think is a perfectly defensible point of view. But Wilson's take was, no, 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 the, the dictatorial stuff was awesome. It's just a shame that he had to use that stuff to free the slaves, um, which is morally repugnant to me. So anyway, uh, you get people on the right who often will make the case that, you know, that time has passed and like now we should let people have, you know, let, let subsidiarity and, you know, um, uh, and freedom will out and let the market decide. I mean, Tom Sowell makes a very powerful case about this kind of stuff. Um, you know, I mean, I've, you know, I've pointed this out a bunch of times before, but you know, his point about the, uh, the segregated busing in the South, um, was, um, I would, I think is just hugely important. It was like, you know, you know who opposed, um, segregated busing in the South bus companies, bus companies considered it an unfair imposition on them. It made things much more expensive for them, much more difficult for the bus drivers, um, much, many more opportunities to piss off customers. Um, it was an unfair regulatory burden on them. I'm sure that some of the people in the bus companies also just thought it was just evil and racist and all that, but that's not the point in economic terms. It was just state governments imposing their rules on everybody rather than letting um, the bus companies set their own rules. And, you know, one of the arguments you can make is that if you had one comp, if, if you had a racist bus company and you had a non-racist bus company, um, the market would win out. And there's, you know, there's a deep and abiding, you know, there's a deep and rich academic literature about how um, racism and bigotry is a bad business practice. 
And particularly, I think in this day and age, you know, if there were, if there were diners in the South, you know, if, if Waffle House, and I'm not dissing Waffle House, I wouldn't do that. Um, but if a, let's say if French Toast House, I just don't want to get the Waffle House mobs coming after me. If French Toast House decided it was going to start discriminating against black people or Asian people or Jews or, you know, or gays or any of these kinds of things, it would hurt their bottom line because of the social stigma that would rightly attach to it. And, um, and this, and anyway, I, I don't need to belabor all this because that's not the point I'm trying to make, except insofar as that this used to be a standard conservative argument that the state shouldn't be in the business of forcing people to abide by a, a particular fashionable view of, 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 of how to conduct private life. You should let people live their lives, let the market sort these things out. Um, you know, all my caveats about how this stuff was necessary, you know, to get rid of Jim Crow and it was notwithstanding, but that's a generally good rule. I think a lot of these kinds of laws should sunset um, because that way, you know, that the best kind of laws are the ones that fix a problem, maybe change behavior, and then go away and let people deal with life on their own terms. And um, I think it is outrageous to make the baker make a gay wedding cake. And or the florist do a same sex uh, wedding, and at the same time, my hunch is that if you're a florist and you refuse to do work for gay people, um, that's not going to help your bottom line. I mean, I, I don't mean to traffic in grotesque stereotypes, but I just think that's probably true, at least in most sort of you know affluent urban areas. That's just uh, you're 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 costing yourself money by doing that same, that kind of thing. You would certainly be costing yourself money if you racially discriminated against people, and you should. Like I wouldn't go to any establishment that refused to serve black people, um, or Asians or gays for that matter, um, with the possible exception of like some of the religious stuff. But we can talk about that another time. That was the conservative position. That was the conservative position before Trump came along. That was the conservative position before the pandemic came along. I haven't changed in that position. I think it's nuts to ban private businesses from being able to make this decision about whether or not to serve people or whether or not to hire people based upon whether or not they've been vaccinated. Now, I might agree that some of, these, some of those policies might be a bad idea. But, you know, you'll hear a podcast I did with Tevi Troy next week. We recorded it this week um, where he pointed out he got to go to a Yankee game with his kids because they had seating, you know, they had open seating for people who've been vaccinated. I think that's great. I think it's fine. Or at least I think it's perfectly fine for the Yankees to make that decision. Um, if one supermarket refuses, if one supermarket says you have to have proof of vaccination to shop there or to work there and another supermarket chain says you don't. Why should Greg Abbott second guess that? Why can't the market sort it out? Why can't, you know, um, these institutions make these decisions on a case by case basis? I think everybody, I assume I have, I've been trying to find the text of the, the executive order, but I have to assume that Abbott has exemptions for old age homes, for hospitals, uh, maybe for schools and prisons and that kind of thing. Um, and he should have exemptions for that, but he should have exemptions for basically everybody. He shouldn't be in the business of forcing 
businesses to do this because um, consumers and businesses should be able to make these decisions on their own. And if, if you feel really passionately that you shouldn't have to get vaccinated and you shouldn't be forced to be vaccinated to go to the Kroger, um, don't go to the Kroger. Send that signal. But instead, it's this idea that it's, 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 it's the height of real American liberty loving to force this one size fits up all policy on the entire state. And I, I think that's nuts. I cannot for the life of me understand why it is a good policy to force cruise ships to take unvaccinated passengers or hire unvaccinated uh, staff crews. Um, the last I saw a big chunk of the, um, uh, the people who want to go on cruises want the cruises to require proof of vaccination, which I think is a reasonable thing to want. Um, um, but even if it's not a reasonable thing to want, why is it more reasonable? Never mind the proper use of state power for Ron DeSantis to take that decision away from customers and from employers. I just don't get it. And but that's fine. We can have a disagreement about the policy. I do. What I really don't get is why people think that somehow this is proof I've gone squishy or that I'm now violating my principles and trying to suck up the people. I just don't, I don't get it. And it's like, this is so, that's why I say it's so remnanty. I feel like I'm staying in, like I'm standing in the absolute center of the carousel. And so I don't have to move my feet much, but everything is going around me changing all the time. And it, I just find the whole thing, you know, bizarre. Um, and so maybe someone will send me an email and explain this to me why I'm, I'm all wet on this. And maybe, you know, I'm being unfair to DeSantis or Abbott, um, in some way, but I, I, I just don't see it. So I wrote a column today. I had to do it fast, which bummed me out because it's a topic I actually kind of feel kind of passionately about. Um, um, yeah, so this, this pro publica thing is infuriating to me because basically it's, I just think it's fundamentally dishonest. And it's working with information that ProPublica should not have. So I'll start with that part. ProPublica, um, you know, which is this gitchy goo, good journalism, left-leaning thing. I mean, they do good journalism sometimes. And I've been thinking about, like, what would I do if someone dumped in my lap all of these tax returns at the dispatch? And I've, at the very least, I think we'd have an interesting conversation about what to do about it. But... Um, uh, they got a hold of like 25, the, the, the tax returns over a long period of time of like the 25 richest people in America. And there are only three ways they could have gotten them, right? One is uh, there's some computer hack um, or they went and bird dogged down the highest paid tax attorneys and accountants in the world and got all of them to jeopardize their careers and risk going to jail by giving up all of this information, which I just find very unlikely or somebody at the IRS for political or ideological reasons gave over what is supposed to be among the most sacrosanct information in government in order to prove some bogus point. It's outrageous. It's, it, it is criminal. I'm glad that Merrick Garland is going to investigate and whoever did it should go to jail for a significant period of time. Um, it is also just like profoundly dangerous to 
I mean, people, we, we talk a lot on this podcast about lack of faith and trust in institutions and breakdown of faith and trust in institutions and, and, you know, all that stuff. Well, if the, if the IRS really gets into the business of weaponizing tax returns for this kind of thing, um, that is just supremely dangerous and short-sighted and Biden should be outraged by it. Uh, this, you know, this will not end well. Uh, if you just go back and you think about how much of a headache the lowest learner IRS stuff was for Obama, this could be really bad. And it should be, I mean, it should be a scandal that this happened. And yet if you watch, you know, most of the cable networks, if you read most of the papers, it's like, you know, I mean, it wouldn't shock me if, if ProPublica gets a Pulitzer for this. Um, and again, you can have an argument that maybe they should, but um, I, I wouldn't make that argument. But the idea that this was good for the country is so preposterous, in part because this is something that we already knew. There's this amazing tendency. Um, it happens every now and then where some reporter reports something that everybody knew and it becomes a huge sensation because it confirms what everybody knew. We have been having this argument pretty much my entire adult professional life about the 1%, about millionaires and billionaires, about paying your fair share. Certainly for the last decade, it has been a constant drumbeat can't count how many times I've written columns about this stuff. We, you know, how many times have you heard Warren Buffett, you know, talk about or write in the New York Times op-ed page about how, you know, his secretary is, is pays tax, taxes at a higher rate than he does and yada, yada, yada. You can think that all that's bad. That's fine. In fact, I know a lot of people think it's bad because they've been saying it nonstop for years. And then the story comes out and they're all like, oh my God, can you believe this is happening? Yes, because you told me it was happening for years. So anyway, um, the, the, and then there's just like the, the, the dishonest part about it. And there's a, you know, there's the dishonest part about the ProPublica thing. And then there's a broader dishonesty that is shot through the way we talk about rich people, um, um, or the 1% or the billionaire class or the ownership class or all these kinds of things. Um, the, the dishonest part about what ProPublica does, and at least they, they're very open about what they're doing. It's just, they own the dishonesty in a bizarre way. Um, they take the, um, the, the tax returns of these people and they say that they, um, uh, didn't pay a lot of income tax, which they didn't because most, um, most billionaires do not make their money from a paycheck. I did the math. If you had, if you made a billion dollars in a year through your paycheck, you would get a little over $19,200,000 a week in your paycheck, um, which would be fun to blow a paycheck in Vegas if, if, if you got that kind of thing. Um, so what, and so what they do is they, they take the amount that these people's wealth has gone up over time and then say, they haven't paid, they've only paid this tiny bit of income taxes. And they don't mention that they've paid all sorts of other taxes. So here it is, I'm just reading from the column. Uh, we compared how much in taxes, how, we compared how much in taxes the richest 25, the 25 richest Americans paid each year 
to how much Forbes estimated their wealth grew in the same time period. Um, and we're going to call that, this, sorry, this is the quote, we're going to call this their true tax rate. Okay, so first thing, they paid other taxes other than income taxes. Um, second, again, we always knew that their income taxes are going to be low because they don't make money from salaries. But they pay property taxes, consumption taxes. Um, uh, there are luxury surcharges on things. Uh, you can go down a long list of other taxes they pay. But yeah, sure, you can also claim that they don't pay enough in taxes. That's a perfectly legitimate argument we can argue about. I don't think it's true necessarily. You know, um, just FYI, according to the latest numbers from the Tax Foundation, um, the top 1% of Americans paid more in income taxes, about 40.1%, than the bottom 90% combined, which was about 28.6%. And the, one of the weird things about this is that... Um, you know, remember about 10 years ago, there was this whole thing about, you know, a nation of moochers and uh, makers versus takers and how you have to have skin in the game and 47, the 47% don't pay any income taxes and yada, 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 or they get more from government than they pay in income taxes and all this kind of stuff. There were some fine public policy points to be made in a lot of that kind of stuff, but at the level of messaging, it was really bad because first of all, as many liberals rightly pointed out, lots of poor middle class and working class people don't pay any or much in income taxes, but they pay a huge chunk in payroll taxes. And a lot of them pay property taxes. Um, and, and they pay sales taxes. And sales taxes, when you don't have a lot of money, are really regressive. And you, know, you can go down the list. Um, and, and liberals were right to say you should not be going around saying that these people don't pay any taxes when what you really mean is they're not paying income taxes. Well, why is that like an incredibly moral and correct point when you're talking about poor people, but when you're talking about rich people, all of a sudden it's so irrelevant that you base this entire bogus story around it. Because again, you know, they don't pay compared to their wealth an enormous amount in, um, income taxes, but they pay an enormous amount of taxes in other regards, including this thing called capital gains taxes. And, um, this idea that, you know, they're not paying any taxes on their wealth just isn't true because until you sell your assets, it's all on paper. If you have, um, I mean, how would you like it if you're, you're, if you paid your mortgage and paid your property taxes, which are kind of wealth tax in a lot of places, by the way, but Imagine if you paid your, you know, your, your mortgage and you paid off your house over 30 years, like a good bourgeois, you know, American and, um, and property values increased so you could settle it as part of, you know, like the chief form of savings for a lot of people is the value of their homes. And so you want the price of housing to go up to a certain extent. Um, and when you sell it, you make a profit and you have to pay a capital gains tax on it. Now, I'm not an expert about where it kicks in and how much money you get before it kicks in and all that kind of stuff. I know it's really egregious in Washington, D.C. Um, but um, that's how you pay taxes on the increase in value of your house or on your baseball cards or your comic book collection um, is you pay, the, you, you, you pay the taxes on it when you sell it because until you sell it, it's not really worth anything, right? You certainly don't know the real price of something until you try to sell something on the market. And how would you like it if you had to pay, um, you know, your, your federal taxes 
based upon what some IRS agent said your stuff is worth in any given year. Um, you know, I mean, I don't think I'm ever going to sell my wedding ring. I hope my wife won't sell her wedding ring or the engagement ring. I let's assume, I don't know, but I assume given where mineral and, you know, those kinds of prices are going, let's just assume it's gone up in value. I shouldn't be taxed on this hypothetical value of something that I'm never going to sell. Um, and so, you know, yeah, Jeff Bezos has a lot of money. Yeah. A lot of it is on paper. And, you know, when he tries to sell the stock, he pays taxes on it. If you want capital gains taxes to be higher. And I heard Josh Barrow on TV the other day, making a very good point about ways we could fix some of the inheritance tax stuff. So you don't get around to People can't get around some of this stuff. I'm open to those conversations and those policy ideas. I'm open as a pragmatic, prudential, you know, matter of raising capital gains taxes, if that makes sense. I'm not convinced that it does, but that's a reasonable, you know, there's nothing written in stone or delivered on tablets that says capital gains should be X and not Y. You know, that's a, that's a question where you just run the numbers and you see how it works. But um, this idea that uh, you that anybody who knew what they were talking about didn't understand that unrealized capital gains are unrealized and therefore you can't go at them until you actually try to sell them is, is preposterous. And anybody who thought that like billionaires didn't hire good lawyers and, and, and accountants to minimize their tax burden is, is a fool and, um, or ignorant. Maybe they're very smart, but they just don't know anything about how this stuff works. And, um, and so the, the, the whole premise of the thing is just fundamentally dishonest and it's, it's dishonest on a, on a really deeper level because embedded in all of this is this assumption that we've been hearing nonstop, at least since the Occupy Wall Street stuff, which is that if we could just get a hold of all of this wealth out there, we could pay for everything and have all the nice things that we want, Right. I mean, Bill de Blasio used to say, um, um, you know, uh, pass the bong. No, he used to say, um, he still says that, um, he used to say there's more than enough money out there. It's just in the wrong hands, which is some Jacobin crap right there. Um, but, uh, this idea that like, as Brian Riedel will test to go back and listen to our last podcast we did with him. You could take every penny of unrealized wealth and realized wealth, right? You could drain their bank accounts. You could confiscate their homes. You could sell their stock portfolios and leave, you know, Warren Buffett standing in a barrel with, without two cents to rub together. You could do that for the entire, not just with all the billionaires. You can do that with the entire 1%. And it wouldn't come close to paying for the Medicare for all green new deal stuff like Bernie Sanders and, and AOC and those people are peddling. It wouldn't come close to paying for it all. And, but that sort of misses a point because even let's just say for the sake of argument that it would pay for it all. Let's say you really could do that. Well, first of all, it's unjust. Yeah, well, I mean, this country was kind of founded in part on tax protests. It is unjust to just take people's stuff without compensation. Um, and there's no point in confiscating. There's no point in confiscating wealth. If you're going to compensate the people for the wealth you stole, 
right? So you're just talking about basically government theft of people's assets, of their wealth, to pay for stuff for other people. And the amazing thing is, like, you know, it's that old line, you know, they want to, uh, you know, people who want to keep more of their own money are called greedy, but people who want to steal money from somebody else to give it to somebody else aren't. And I completely butchered that, but you get the point. Um, um, but again, let's say you can confiscate all that wealth of the top 1% and you could pay for all of this stuff for the next 10 years or whatever. What then? What have you done to the economy? What have you done? What, what kind of moral hazard are we talking about when you've basically said there's no point in trying to get wealthy? There's no point in trying to save, at least not at any large scale. There's no point in like orchestrating your, in, your investments and your, uh, you know, uh, financial picture um, in ways that policy is supposed to encourage you to because they're just going to take it anyway. And, and this just raises one last point. You know, people who say, you know, our tax system favors the wealthy, um, they always seem to forget that the, our tax system, whether you like it or not, first of all, is again, extremely progressive. But second of all, we set up these laws to encourage people to give money to philanthropy, to invest um, in job creating stuff, right? To, you know, if you think corporations are evil because they have low taxes, maybe get rid of the tax breaks for investing in, in green energy. Because you can't have it both ways. You can't say that these people are absolutely evil for uh, conforming to the social engineering implicit in the tax code or in it explicit in the tax code um and then decry the fact that they're taking advantage of these loopholes because they're not loopholes they're the things that you put in the policy you put in the law to to change behavior i would much rather a very flat system and you know and get rid of all of that social engineering through the tax code that'd be fine by me but whenever people of my ilk make that argument the people who scream the loudest are for the most part on the left um because you know at the end of the day Rich people are going to do well under any tax code, so long as there are enough incentives for them to get rich. And one of the reasons that is so is because they're rich. And this sort of gets to this point I've been making constantly on this podcast, which is that complexity is a subsidy. The more difficult you make it to navigate life, the more difficult you make it to get into elite institutions, the more difficult you make it to be right with the law. Um, the more red tape you throw up around uh, business formation or, or adoption or any of these, I mean, pick it. It doesn't really matter because the point is a universal point at scale. The more complicated you make life, the more you are benefiting people with financial capital, cognitive capital, uh, social capital, because they have the resources to navigate those labyrinths that people who lack one or all of those things do not have. This is why it is a moral imperative to have simple rules for a complex society. And um, there's no reason why we have to have an incredibly complicated tax code, um, except for the fact that that's what a lot of people at the top of the sort of meritocratic system the, who may not think of themselves as social engineers, but that's sort of what they are, they're planners and social engineers. They think that they know how to fine tune with all these knobs and levers and whatever, exactly how the economy should work and how people should have to think of their incentives. And, um, and then the problem is that the rich people who know how to navigate this stuff, navigate it and they do well. 
And then many of the same people scream bloody murder about how it's unfair that, you know, this system favors them. It's not the system that favors them. It's that wealth favors them. And again, I much rather live in a country where we keep generating, kept, kept generating more and more billionaires than one where we didn't. Um, and I'm not trying to make some sort of hackneyed trickle down thing, although there's a lot of merit to trickle down stuff. Um, um, I'm just making the point that when you have a society that is throwing off a lot of billionaires, it's also throwing off a lot of millionaires. It's also throwing off a lot of other people. And one of the great things about really rich people is that they are willing to pay through the nose for really great stuff that eventually becomes cheap for the rest of us by being early adopters. They make things cheaper for the rest of us. And they, you know, I mean, let's put it this way. When a really good jetpack first gets on the market, it'll be super expensive and only really rich people will buy it. And then the jetpack manufacturer will take that money and they will figure out ways to make it cheaper and cheaper and cheaper. And eventually I get my jetpack and, um, and I also get my vaccine and I get all these other things. Um, prosperity is a good thing. And that doesn't mean that inequality isn't a problem. I think it's much less of a problem than people make it out to be. Um, I basically care about, I, I don't want to create more poor people. Um, and I would rather see poor people get richer than rich people get richer. Um, but this idea that poor people get poor because rich people get rich is just not true. It's certainly unproven. And, um, anyway, I think it's all a hot mess. All right. So how long have I gone here? Okay. So I'm going to wrap it up now because I gotta, I gotta walk wet stinky dogs and then take my lovely daughter out. I was going to do a whole thing, um, about my dad. Um, he died on June 9th and 16 years ago. So that would get, so it was yesterday. And I thought about, I would read the eulogy to my dad and maybe I'll try it around father's day. Um, but I, I, I tried to do it and I just would start to cry and I don't feel like doing that. I got enough on my plate right now to go into a downward spiral of lacrimosity. Um, but maybe we'll put in the show notes if you want to see it, or you can just Google my name and the hot bird and it'll be the first result because it's a, that was the title we gave to um, the eulogy and the eulogy was, um, was one of the harder things I ever had to write, but I think it's one of the best things I ever wrote. And I don't say that kind of thing very often. And, um, and I guess got, you know, a lot of emotions about to be an empty nester. My only child is going to go to college at the end of the year. And, um, um, and it's the anniversary of my dad dying. And, um, anyway, I don't want to get all upset, but I just wanted to, to note that. And I, I did pay him a little bit of a tribute, as I said, in the Wednesday G file by going on a bit of a self-indulgent tear against, um, communism, which was one of my dad's favorite things to do. So there's that. So anyway, um, please come on by the dispatch. Um, Audrey Fallberg, former intern of mine, now one of our, um, crack reporters, although she's leaving for a bit of a fellowship at the wall street journal for a little bit, but she's going to come back. Um, did a fantastic piece on her way out the door um, about the the quote-unquote audit in Maricopa County, which is just a complete, I don't want to curse, fecal festival. Um, and uh, you should really read it. 
and you should read all our stuff. And, um, and I've gotten just an enormous amount of positive feedback about the Jonathan Rausch podcast and the Sean Bushway podcast, um, about crime. Um, so maybe if you want to check those things out, that'd be great. Um, I have not listened to the latest hangover with Chris Steyerwald, but I am really looking forward to it. So maybe you want to check that out too. That's still in my feed. Um, all right. I'll just see you next time. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.